As we return this evening to our study of the Ten Commandments, we come to commandment number eight, which is recorded in Exodus 20, verse 15, as Moses recorded by the Holy Spirit and therefore infallibly recorded to us the very word of God. And these are words that God spoke directly to Israel from or as they were gathered at Mount Sinai. And after this, as we've spoken before, the, the Lord, as he spoke directly to Israel, the people then said that this was too much for them, and they told Moses, you speak with us, and we will hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. But we also would emphasize again that, that when the Lord spoke these words to Israel, that he did so after rescuing them from captivity in Egypt. So he didn't tell them these commandments and say, if you keep them, I'll rescue you. But he poured out his grace and rescued them and then said, now keep these commandments because I have claimed you as my people. But here we come to the eighth commandment this evening, which is Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. This is the word of the living God. So let us hear it with reverence. Again, Exodus 20, verse 15. You shall not steal. And thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. Let's seek the Lord in prayer right now. Lord, we do pray that as we consider your word this evening, and as we expand upon what the rest of the scriptures have to say about this commandment, that we would be hearing you, and by your Holy Spirit would be empowered to obey you. We do pray that you would therefore convict us as I preach this word this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you'll no doubt be very aware in each of these sermons on the Ten Commandments, I've begun by painting a picture here or pointing out that there are three basic uses uh, that God has ordained for his moral law. And that the major misuse or abuse of that law is to think that uh, we would have the moral power within ourselves to keep that moral law. As I said just moments ago, the, the Lord did not tell Israel keep these commandments, and if you do, I'll rescue you. But he rescued them first and then said, now in response, keep these commandments. So rather, the three uses that we commonly speak of, of God's moral law, which are summarized in these Ten Commandments, is number one, to teach us that we are sinners, that we need a sinless Savior, as we've spoken of this in terms of being a mirror, the the commandments of God, the moral law of God, show us what we're like. If we're honest, as we examine ourselves against these laws, we see that we are sinners, and therefore, if we are to be reconciled to our holy God, we need a sinless substitute to take the penalty for our sins, for he who is guilty of breaking one law is guilty of breaking the whole law. Second use of the law is to show that those who are redeemed, or rather to show those who are redeemed by God's grace, working through faith, 
in that sinless Savior that we learn that we need from this law. It shows us how to thank God for what he has done for us in Jesus Christ, how to live a life of gratitude, how to live a life of service to God who has rescued us. And then the third use is to keep the unsaved even from being as bad as they could be. So knowledge of God's moral law in the world, even among those who will never be saved, often keeps them from being as bad as they could be. Whether it's to appear good to other people, whether it's just fear of judgment without real faith, and so on. There there are various reasons that people would see, oh, this is beneficial. Maybe they just note that it's, it's something that is helpful, so that, for example, this commandment we're dealing with this evening, uh, you shall not steal. Well, even the most reprobate sinner could recognize, even though many people do steal, um, uh, even the most reprobate can recognize in certain contexts, well, if I promise not to take your stuff, then I can be reasonably assured that you won't take my stuff. And so if we, if we agree on that, and then we can agree that altogether we'll punish somebody who does take somebody else's stuff, then that, that helps us preserve our things, uh, the, the things that we have earned in this life. And so even the unsaved can look at, at God's law, and it will prevent them from being as bad as they could be. And so this is part of God's common grace to all mankind, and also his special grace to the church, because it makes the world a little more tolerable for his people to live in. The world is fallen and broken, but it's not as broken as it could be. And that's one of the uses of God's law. Well, the eighth of the Ten Commandments, which summarize God's moral law, is what we read this evening in Exodus 20, verse 15, you shall not steal. The fundamental principle found throughout the scriptures is respect for private property. A Respect for personal possessions. And so this is one of of many reasons that communism is antithetical to a Christian worldview. Because God understands and has ordained the, uh, the sanctity, if you will, of private property, of personal possessions. And a communist system doesn't see private property as something that should exist. And sadly, we see that kind of uh, Marxist idea being uh, promoted by many of our institutions of learning. And so we've got young people, whereas when I was a youngster, I couldn't imagine any of my peers saying, oh, communism doesn't sound so bad. And now we have young people in college and even younger uh, according to surveys, saying that communism sounds like a pretty good idea. Some of the most specific civil laws in the Bible are applications of the principle, you shall not steal. The penalties, even for moving landmarks that mark property lines in Old Testament Israel, for taking an ox or any other property were steep penalties. They involved, at the very least, restoring the value of the stolen property several times over. There was a steep penalty because God holds private property to be a sacred thing. 
The command not to steal doesn't make any sense if there's no such thing as private property. If nobody ha- owns what they have, and we have a statement from the World Economic Forum that's been uh, bandied about in recent years that the, the, their plan is that what by 2030 or something that all of us will own nothing and be happy. Well, again, that's antithetical to the biblical worldview. Private property is essential to human existence. and uh, If God were indifferent to our claims, to our private possessions, or if he wanted all of us to be socialists or communists, he wouldn't have so many laws in the Old Testament that spoke of steep penalties for stealing in various ways. And he wouldn't have made it one of the Ten Commandments which summarize his moral law. Remember, These laws reflect God's very character. God's very character is reflected in the world order that he has established in which we have private property. Often those with socialistic tendencies will misread the the one instance in Scripture in the early chapters of the book of Acts when believers held their possessions in common. We need to note several things about that, and we have not too long ago as we've been making our way through Acts in our Wednesday night Bible study. Number one, when people shared all things in common, it was believers, not an entire society. Number two, it was voluntary. It was not required or enforced either by the church or by the civil government. Nobody confiscated anyone else's property and redistributed it to someone else. And as we see in the the case of Ananias and Sapphira and Peter's words to them, we find that their property was theirs to do with as they pleased. It was only when they sold it and claimed to have given all the proceeds to the church but hadn't done that, that in telling that lie, that was where the problem came up. But their pro- their private property was theirs to do with as they pleased. So there was no compulsion there. And when the scripture says that they held all things in common, that was talking about an attitude. Not that that they were pooling all their property together and giving it up to the church, but that they were holding all things in common as if my things are, are of use to you and I will let you use them. I'll let you have my surplus of what I have. And the reason that many of them felt that was a good idea at the time is our third thing that we need to note, which is that the Christians in Jerusalem saw no need to keep their private property around Jerusalem because Jesus had told them within the lifetime of the people that were listening to him, Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. So what did it hurt them to sell their private property? And you think of the example of Barnabas, who sold his piece of property in Jerusalem, he was a Levite. That would have been a great scandal under the Old Testament system for him to sell property that he owned around Jerusalem. That was supposed to stay in his family perpetually. But he knew we're now in a new covenant era and Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. So I'll sell this property and it will be used for the good of the church. Not once in the whole Bible... Will you find God condemning economic differences between different people, whether among God's people or outside the covenant community? He never condemns somebody for being wealthy or never condemns someone for being poor. Some of the 
most godly men. In fact, the two men who were pointed out in the Old Testament as being the most godly are arguably Abraham and Job. And they were two of the wealthiest men in their generations. Their wealth didn't make them wicked, nor did it make them righteous. It was their relationship with God that made them righteous. And many unrighteous men have been very wealthy as well. But there were many righteous poor and many unrighteous poor. Scripture only condemns dishonest gain and the human tendency to put confidence in wealth or confidence in those who are wealthy, to honor the wealthy more than the poor. Those are two forms of idolatry. If we put our confidence in the wealth that we have, well, then we're actually replacing God with our possessions, with our earthly wealth, with our money. If we honor the wealthy more than the poor, then we're also idolizing those who do have more. And that's not the way it works either. Of course, that is idolatry. We're replacing them in the place of God. And we're practicing partiality, which the scriptures condemn. The ancient church father Clement of Alexandria rightly wrote that God unevenly distributes wealth and property in order to give the opportunity for Christian charity and generosity. There are probably other reasons, but that's one reason that God would providentially give some people more than others. If, uh, if everyone had the same amount of wealth from the beginning, there would be no chance for those who are more materially blessed than others to share with those who have less. And that's actually spiritually healthy for them. And it displays the love of Christ to others. It also would have been impossible to distinguish Christ in his humility. As he humbled himself, he didn't come into the world as the son of a king on earth. He came into the world into a family that by that time had been dispossessed of its royal heritage. It was poor. In Philippians 4, 12 through 13, Paul writes, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is one of those uh, things that you've heard me say before. It's a little pet peeve of mine that uh, people will take that part of the, the scripture out of context. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And so I can win the Super Bowl or I can climb Mount Everest. Well, that's not what the scripture is actually about. The scripture in context there is telling us the all things that he's talking about there is that we can be content. We can understand how to, we can be Christ's servant when we're brought low, when we're abounding. When uh, we're wealthy, or at least well-fed, or hungry. When we have abundance, when we have need. When we have lots of stuff, when we have very few things. I can do all things who, through him who strengthens me. By allowing and ordaining economic differences in the world, the Lord actually teaches us to depend on Him and not on these worldly things. To be content, whether rich or poor, whether hungry or full. One of the major points coming up in a sermon in a few weeks in, in 1 Corinthians, Lord willing, will be that Paul speaks of Christian contentment. 
So we can learn to be content whether we're rich or poor, whether hungry or full, because in every circumstance, the Christian has Jesus. And that's the greatest wealth that you could possibly have. But knowing we have a right to private possessions has to be viewed in light of everything else we learn about what God expects us to do with the things he's given us and how we're supposed to see the world as revealed in his word. In James 2, we see that the wealthy are not to be given preference in the church simply because they have a lot of money. It's very tempting to do that, especially when a wealthy person is giving a lot of money to the church. But if we're all faithfully tithing, then it's, it's even in terms of how much people give and what God expects of us to give. You know, we all give the same percentage. And yes, we're allowed to give more, but we don't show partiality or must not show partiality just because somebody has more to give. Leviticus 19 and 1 Timothy 6, among other scriptures, speak of the responsibility of those who have been given more materially to give voluntarily and eagerly to the relief of the poor, widows, and orphans. Indeed, that's one of the most frequent reasons for condemnation that the Lord gives in the books of the prophets, saying this is why Israel will be destroyed. This is why Judah will be taken into captivity in Babylon. Because they neglected the Sabbath, they turned to idolatry, and frequently he would point out, you were neglecting the poor and the widows and orphans. Giving of what we have to feed the hungry, to create jobs, to support relief programs, that's something God delights in. We're told the Lord loves a cheerful giver. And the New Testament lists generosity among the spiritual gifts that God gives some Christians. Obviously, we can easily see that we violate the Eighth Commandment if we were to commit burglary or highway robbery or something, right? Or go in and rob a bank. You shall not steal. That's pretty obvious, right? Anytime we other outright take somebody else's belongings, we're stealing. But of course, as we've seen with other commandments, there are more subtle ways that we can break each one of these commandments. And that each one of these commandments has both a positive and a negative aspect. So if it says you're not supposed to do something, it implies you should do the opposite. If it says you should do something, like keep the Sabbath, it implies that you should not do the opposite. So really, we can break this commandment against stealing any time we're failing to respect private property. Someone else's right to what they have. So vandalism is a kind of theft. You know, it forces someone to pay for the repairs or the cleanup. Even, you might say, in our day and age, a very common form of theft is when we vote a tax increase on somebody else, especially if the promise is, Vote for me, and I'll take that guy's stuff and give it to you. We vote a tax increase on one group of people while not voting the same increase on ourselves. Well, that's a form of theft. Because we're saying our property is inviolable, but somebody else's is not. If we steal time from our employers, well, that's theft because they're paying us to work. We're not working. Not paying a fair price for goods or services. That's, of course, a form of theft. And, of course, more recently, I could 
add to this list, something that's happened, I shouldn't say more recently, because I could have easily placed this on the list many years ago when I was preaching on the Ten Commandments, like 10 or 12 years ago. But I can easily add that now in the last couple of years where this has gotten much worse. If you are a government that prints more money out of nothing simply to cover your debts or to give free money away, and then, well, let me also say, and then also if you're shocked that the economy tanks because of that, uh, you're not very wise, but also you're stealing. You're stealing money. You're stealing the value of the, the dollars from everybody who possesses dollars. The daily devotional reading from Table Talk for September 9th, 2010, actually said this, We have no right to another person's time, income, or property. And so we must be very careful never to steal any of these from our neighbor, whether directly or indirectly. For example, we should keep the appointments we have made in order to keep from stealing time from others. We must also be faithful employees by not lazily wasting, stealing time, expecting to get paid for doing very little. There's another way in which we can violate this commandment that Scripture tells us about. Read of it in Malachi chapter 3. Here God commands, or he's telling believers that they're robbing him, in fact. As we read in Malachi 3 verses 8 through 10. And you might recall when I preached through Malachi some time back that that's a, a lot of times we see that a question is asked. The Lord is speaking through Malachi and he asks a question and then the, we hear this rhetorical answer from the people. How is that so? Right? And so the question here is, will a man rob God? So the scripture says, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse for you have robbed me. Even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing, and there will be room enough to receive it. So even in tithing, we can rob God if we don't return to Him. See that the principle there is that the Lord owns everything, and He allows each one of us to have a portion of it. Some of us have a bigger portion than others. And he has commanded his people to give a tithe, that is a tenth of our increase, to support the ministry of his word. So again, that's 10%, one-tenth of our increase, not not of all our assets, but of our increase, of our income. That should be given to support the worship of the Lord, to maintain the house of worship and the ministry of the word in general. If I plan my budget in such a way that I would decide... You know, what I can afford with my income and then whatever little bit I have left over I give to the service of the Lord and just give the leftovers to God, I'm misusing what God has entrusted to me. In other words, as the Lord says in Malachi 3.8, I'm robbing him. Rather, I should set aside the tithe and then plan my budget according to that other 90% that I have. And if I do as I see fit, as long as I don't do anything sinfully with it, the Lord is pleased. And if I give some of that as a further offering, some kind of service or charity, well, God takes special delight in that. 
I'm not harping on you here. I don't think that uh, this is a huge problem here for us. In fact, uh, uh, I think that this congregation has been very faithful in tithing. But when Christians are found to be robbing God, and who knows who might hear this sermon on Sermon Audio, well, we're actually erecting a barrier in our lives between us and God. And don't think for one second that what I'm saying here is that you give your tithe to God, or the more money that you give, the bigger blessing God gives you. Nothing like that. No, we don't want to be like the Pharisees who, who robbed widows and made the poor poorer. We're simply talking about doing with the things that God has given us what God commands that we do. And if we're not obeying those commandments, then we erect a barrier in our lives between us and God as surely as if we never prayed or read the Bible. But to expand a little bit on the question of, of stealing, the Westminster Larger Catechism, I wish I had time to look at all the, to show you all the proof texts for this, but the Westminster Larger Catechism summarizes the Bible's teaching on this commandment like this. Yes, what are the sins forbidden in the Eighth Commandment? The sins forbidden in the Eighth Commandment, besides the neglect of duties required, are theft, robbery, man-stealing. That's a scripture that uh, in Exodus that has to deal with, uh, with uh, slavery. The kind of slavery that existed in American history was man-stealing. It was not the kind of slavery that was allowed in old, the Old Testament. Where somebody was kidnapped and sold into slavery, and kept in servitude. Uh, that is a form of, of robbery. Receiving anything that is stolen, fraudulent dealings, false weights and measures. You can imagine, you know, we've had farmers in our congregation. Could you imagine if you went to, to sell grain? And you weighed your truck full of grain and then you take it and then unload it and then you go back and you weigh the truck and uh, see if that's uh, the difference then, of course, there is, is, the, price, is the amount of grain. What if, the, what if the person you're selling the grain to threw a bunch of weights in the back of your truck then so that it seemed like your truck weighed more than it actually does after... Or what if he manipulated the scale or the reverse what if the person trying to sell the grain makes the the truck seem heavier before and then lighter after that would be false weights and measures that's something that the scripture condemns removing landmarks so property lines right injustice and unfaithfulness in contracts between man and man or in matters of trust so not dealing faithfully with a contract or in a matter of trust. So say that you're a trustee for some organization. Oppression, extortion, usury, that's exorbitant interest, bribery, vexatious lawsuits. (laughs) Think about what the ACLU is known for doing. They'll, They'll threaten a lawsuit against a church or a school or something for doing something that they have every right to do but that church or school or organization knows we can't afford to take this to court. And so they'll capitulate. Or then they do go to court and they're financially broken by it. Vexatious lawsuits. 
Unjust enclosures and depopulations. So enclosing land that people should have free access to or depopulations. That's something that happened in Scottish history, the great uh, highland clearances where people were essentially forced in, by the laws into an economic situation where they could not afford to stay in their homes. And they left, and that's what brought a lot of Scots to settle in North America. And this was all so that the landowners, or so that people could confiscate that land and use it mostly for raising sheep, as they found the sheep to be more lucrative than the people. Depopulations. Engrossing commodities to enhance the price. So manipulating markets unfairly. Unlawful callings. So that would be taking a job that's sinful, that, is, that demands sin. Right? All other unjust or sinful ways of taking or withholding from our neighbor what belongs to him, or of enriching ourselves. Covetousness, inordinate prizing and affecting worldly goods. So, again, that's idolatry, right? Distrustful and distracting cares and studies in getting, keeping, and using them. Envying all the prosperity of others, or excuse me, envying at the prosperity of others. So that would also be a violation of, of the Tenth Commandment, as we'll get to later. As likewise, idleness, prodigality. So being lazy, not a hard worker, right? Or prodigality, overspending, right? Being irresponsible with what you have. Wasteful gaming, so gambling. In all other ways whereby we do unduly prejudice our own outward estate, and defrauding ourselves of the due use and comfort of that estate which God hath given us. So God gives you things and you misuse them. That's actually a way of stealing, in a sense. Even if you're stealing from yourself, something that could have been profitable to you in the future. Or we could think of, in a sense, stealing from our heirs if we squandered a fortune that somebody else could have made use of. Now, when we see how carefully God honors this principle of private property, of tithing, of paying fair wages, of giving fair work for the wages we receive, and so on, any honest assessment by any of us, if we examine ourselves carefully, reveals, I have violated, every one of us should be able to say, I have violated this law. You don't have to have shoplifted sometime in your life to have violated the Eighth Commandment. But praise God... We have a perfect Savior. Jesus Christ bore our sins, every sin, on the cross and paid the full penalty for them. Trust in Him, and that is the only way that you can be saved from the penalty of your sins. And our response should be to glorify Him and endeavor to be like Him. And if you want a starting place to learn to be like Jesus. Look at these commandments and learn to obey them. So in regard to this commandment, it means we should be truthful and faithful in all our financial dealings, pay a fair price for goods and services, give fair labor and goods for our wages, and of course tithing. Make restitution for things we've gained unlawfully. Respect the rights of others to their own property. You know, part of... The, the conviction of the great ancient church father, Augustine of Hippo, once he had converted, he was reflecting on what God had done uh, with him through his life. And he remembered that he used to commonly sit in a place where somebody's fruit tree overhung the wall to their garden. 
And I don't remember if it was apples or pears, but he would eat that fruit. And then he later on felt so guilty that he had, he had stolen that property that belonged to somebody else. But then he also rejoiced that he had a Savior who had died for that sin. We can be moderate in our purchasing of worldly possessions and not loving them, but using them to God's glory. Those are ways to serve God and obey this commandment. Preserving and furthering our own wealth is perfectly appropriate and an appropriate way of obeying this commandment. Uh, Helping to grow wealth, uh, it is not true as uh, again, to get back to Marxism, uh, it is not true that there is a finite amount of wealth in the world. Ultimately, there is, in a sense, because the world is finite. But we can actually create wealth. We are far wealthier than any society before ours. You know, this would have been more true five years ago <laughs> than, any, than any society before ours in the history of the world. Where did that wealth come from? We didn't steal it from anybody. It was created. Contrary to what many people want to say, it was wealth that was created. There are ways to create wealth. Uh, And by the way, when we see that uh, wagering was was one of the ways in which the the Westminster Confession said that we can uh, unlawfully use these things, that we could be violating this commandment, uh, you're not gambling if you invest in the stock market. Some people sometimes call that gambling. That's not gambling. You're actually putting money into a project in which people are going to be paid to do a fair day's work, supposedly. And if their their goods or services they're providing are things that people are willing to pay for, then you can get a return on that investment. Uh, that's actually very fair and a good use of your money, of course. You don't want to be unwise in the investments you make. But making wise investments are actually uh, things that God commends in Scripture. So furthering your wealth and the wealth of others by lawful means is a good way of obeying this commandment. And of course, as I already mentioned, returning to the Lord a portion to support the ministry of the Word and charity. These are all ways that we can serve the Lord by keeping the Eighth Commandment. Well, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your law, for its many uses. We thank you that it shows us our need for a Savior, and we recognize that we depend not on our own righteousness, which we see as but filthy rags in your sight, but on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And in gratitude for salvation, we ask that you would keep us honest in our financial dealings, remembering that we hold in trust all that we have, for it really belongs to you. And we ask that we would, by your Holy Spirit, glorify you in the right use of what we have been given. And that we would ever respect the possessions that you have given to others as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.